Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Greetings all you Cradio listeners and welcome to another episode of Question and Answer with Bishop Julian Porteous. You are here with your two very inquisitive hosts, Jeremy Ambrose. Hello everyone. And myself, Javina Graham. And today we're going to waste no time in getting stuck into Bishop Julian with a big question. Now Bishop, I hope you're ready for this one. Whenever we listen to the news or even hear little tidbits of news, we hear this phrase, private members bill, coming up all the time about new laws that are being proposed. I'm wondering if you can tell us, well, first of all, what is a private member's bill and, and why do we keep hearing an increase in these things happening? I think the use of the private member's bill really is, is a strategy that is now being used by, by particular groups that want to bring in legislation, particularly that will change uh, cultural norms, cultural practices within Australia. So they've learned that rather than try to get a... a uh, a particular political party to adopt a view, same, say, about same-sex marriage or abortion or, or, or um, issues related to uh, euthanasia, which they know will be very, um, uh, very divisive issues and they know it will be difficult to get a platform from the party on it. And, and also what they, they want to avoid is, is not putting things up that will be then able to be particular issues in election campaign. So rather than have it, if you like, in one sense, put out there to the people, they try to, if they feel they've got the numbers or they can get the numbers um, to uh, to bring about a ch- uh, changes in legislation, they'll use a private member's bill. So this has become quite a common uh, strategy now that's being used by those who, who want to effect changes in the culture on critical moral issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we find that this is um, this is quite common, and, and in um, parliaments around Australia now there are numbers of bills, not just one here and there, but um, many of the jurisdictions have private members' bills that are being put forward on these critical moral issues. Bishop, let's I mean have a look at Tasmania, and something very frightening seems to be happening there. Um, can you tell us something about this Tasmanian bill and perhaps what it would mean for, for Catholics living their faith? Well, there are, there are actually two um, bills that are currently um, being worked through the uh, Tasmanian um, uh, parliament. Both of them are very disturbing, but one that um, I find um, most disturbing is the bill that's being proposed with regard to abortion, now what they say is they just want to to free up the availability of abortion. You see, at the present moment, the law requires that that um, that nobody can have an abortion without there being the um, the approval of two doctors. So it's a safeguard that's been there because if you do remember, abortion um, has always been seen in traditionally. As, as a crime, um, the first steps were made to to, to decriminalise it, but it's still in the in the mind of of legislators, still not seen as just something which is completely on demand. In other words, there are 
certain structures that have been put in place um, because, if you like, a society is concerned about the fact of abortion and, and from a whole range of, of, of aspects. And so there are still some particular requirements that are, uh, are in place for when a woman wants to have an abortion. Now, generally speaking these days, uh, sadly, um, this is not normally uh, a real obstacle. If anybody wants to have an abortion, then um, it's not too difficult to have compliant doctors or, or people who will enable it to, uh, to take place. However, this, this bill does seek to uh, firstly eliminate this requirement and any uh, woman is, is not required to seek any um, further counsel or, or, um, or present their request before any doctor. So it's, in other words, it just frees up the thing to make, to make, basically make um, abortion something which can be on demand. Um, however, even though that itself is a, is a, is a serious matter, it's some of the other dimensions associated with this particular legislation that I think are very, very disturbing. Um, for example, the legislation requires that uh, a doctor or a, um, a counsellor uh, or, or anybody who is in any sort of professional role associated with a woman who seeks abortion must comply with the request of the woman and must refer their request for abortion without any any resistance. So you could have an example, say, of somebody who um, who is uh, who who's, has, has a strong pro-life um, position, say a doctor or, or a, a counsellor, who a woman comes to seek uh, advice from or, or wants to talk about the possibility of having an abortion. Um, uh, the the doctor, uh, according to this legislation, must allow the abortion. It, it cannot counsel against it, cannot put uh, any expression of opposition to it. If the doctor or the counsellor um, does not refer or allow the abortion to take place, then they have actually committed a criminal act. And as such, they can be charged with this and uh, the, the penalty is $65,000 or one year in prison. So, in other words, the law not only provides greater availability for abortion, but also, if you like, forces people who are in um, in medical practices to um, to comply with these requests at, at the threat of being fined or being in prison. This, I think, is a very serious shift in the nature of the law. It opposes um, conscientious objection. Uh, it, it opposes freedom of religion. So it's a very, very serious, um, one could say draconian uh, requirement associated with this legislation. And there's another dimension to it as well, which which is, is really curious because as far as I know in Tasmania, this has not really been a serious issue in the past. But now it says that no person who opposes abortion can be within 150 metres of an abortion clinic. Now, in, in various states in Australia, as I said, not so much in Tasmania, there has been a little in Tasmania, but certainly in other states in Australia, there have been 
those who have been very concerned about the whole issue of abortion and have carried out peaceful protests in front of abortion clinics. These have always been done in cooperation with the police. There's never been any violence. There's never been any imposition on people. There's, there's always respected people's freedom. Many cases, many times they're across the road. They're not directly in front of the door of the abortion clinic, putting an intimidating presence, you know, for people coming into the abortion clinic. So uh, groups that have uh, been protesting against abortion have always acted uh, within the law and always acted with a great deal of discretion and, and respect. Um, however, this law uh, would make any such action now uh, a criminal action and again would, where they would be submitted to the possibility of a fine of $65,000 or a year's imprisonment. So it, uh, it's a very... Um, Again, a very dangerous law because because of the extent to which it will go to pre to prevent any protest against abortion. Now, it's further uh, it has further in, um, implications because I understand that there are one or two abortion clinics in Tasmania that are very close to churches, mm. and so if we if, if a group of, uh, of people who were um, opposed to abortion came together for a mass in that church, then there's every possibility they might just walk past the abortion clinic to go to it. Uh, they might be wearing a T-shirt that shows that they're pro-life. Now, technically, they could then be prosecuted by the law. So this is a very, very dangerous precedent. In, in setting up this sort of law. And it shows that there is, uh, there is a hard core of very strong resistance to any protest or, or any alternative view to the acceptance of abortion. Wow. And isn't freedom of choice something that um, pro-abortionists talk about? And now where's the choice here for... Exactly. I think that's, that's a very good point because uh, the, 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 you never see uh, people talk about abortion and they never use the word abortion, of course. They'll always use the word termination or, or whatever. They'll talk about women's rights. And, of course, their great slogan is pro-choice, mm -hmm. just as those who, who recognise the inherent immorality of abortion are pro-life. These are pro-choice. But, of course, it's pro-choice as far as you agree with our choices. <laughs> uh, in this particular case, anybody who who adopts a, a different position straight away is 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 being criminalised uh, by this legislation. So it is a very disturbing piece of legislation. It, it threatens some of the most fundamental principles in our uh, society uh, in Australia. So it is something that does need to be looked at very very seriously. Well, Bishop, hearing about these words, we use the word draconian and terrifying, and I don't think they're exaggerations in any way. But moving forward or or looking at it with the positive light, what can we do to help stop these well, these private members' bills that are, that are proceeding through Parliament now? I think the worst thing we can do is be silent. Um, and, and, and also I think um, I, I know one of the things that you often hear those who are advocating these changes say is is that uh, look it's all inevitable these things are going to happen so 
why resist them they're going to come in and and also that you hear the phrase don't you be on the right side of history you know so this yeah. these are these are the things that are going to be happening don't be seen as somehow caught up in the past or, or not moving with the times, not understanding the progressive development of Western civilization or whatever. Um, however, we know that these things, uh, there is the question of the, of the morality of the acts themselves, of, of abortion, of euthanasia, um, but also uh, there is the fact that these things do by their very nature cause terrible harm and suffering. Um, and I think it's only going to be in time that people realise how much damage these things actually do do. And, of course, people advocating freedom for abortion and so forth are not going to in any way emphasise the negative aspects of it. We do need to um, engage in these issues. These issues are very vital for the future of our country, future of our culture. And so we, we need to be involved. It's not just a question of taking moral stand for moral stand's sake. It's something saying we need to do this because we want to protect human life and we also want to protect people from making choices which they may later deeply regret and, and be something which has caused, causes them great personal pain and anguish. Um, so we do need to protest. Now, obviously one way, and I think it, it is important that there are public expressions of of protest because these these in a, in a democratic society, it's often public protest which is becomes the means of giving public expression to a contrary view. And if there's no protest whatsoever, if um, done of course peacefully, prayerfully, appropriately within the law, but unless there are um, some public expressions of our opposition to these laws there will be the attitude of people to say, well, everybody's more or less accepted it. Um, the other area of uh, of engagement needs to be with the legislators themselves. Um, often there are inquiries associated with these, these uh, laws as they're brought forward. Um, we need to be involved in those inquiries, putting forward submissions, presenting our view. Um, we, we also need to be in contact with our own local member, to indicate clearly our own position on this. So when a vote comes up, that local member knows that there are a considerable number of their constituents who um, who elected them who believe that this legislation is wrong so that they do know um, the views of their constituents. And, and also key players like, like a, a Premier uh, or another key person who may be um, a key person in the, in the debate uh, needs to be informed uh, of this. And, and, of course, our politicians, particularly those who have uh, views about the protection of the dignity of human life, we need to encourage them so they know that they're not standing alone, uh, that we are with them, and, um, and where possible we, we can offer our support and encouragement to them because often they can find themselves uh, fairly isolated in these debates. So there are a number of things we can do. I think we do need to be involved with these issues. We can't be silent. We can't just, if you like, accept that view that's sort of inevitable. We're not going to be able to change things. I think we do need to engage ourselves with these issues very really because they are of great significance and they are going to have a profound effect on the future 
of our culture and our society in Australia. Well, Bishop Julian, we've asked some questions and you've given us some very in-depth answers. Thank you very much for your time on this segment of Q&A. Thank you. Jeremy, I think it's my turn to ask you a question in, in response to you often grilling me. So uh, in this section of our, uh, of our program, we, we, we take a time to look at some little uh, aspect of Catholic life, Catholic tradition, Catholic culture, and look at its origins, its, its meaning. Um, the one I'd like to talk to you just very briefly about today is uh, St. Michael the Archangel prayer. I'm sure you're familiar with with that prayer. I am indeed, Bishop Julian. That's a very nice prayer indeed. Yeah, and I, I think it's a prayer that um, many Catholics really like to pray and, and perhaps they've um, been drawn to it. I think it's got a bit of a resurgence in some ways, and particularly among young people uh, at the present moment. Uh, it's it's um, the, the prayer itself um, is, is interesting in the sense that it's particularly associated with a, a particular pope, the Pope uh, Leo the Thirteenth, who, uh, who who was pope around the change of the the nineteenth twentieth century, so so the the late nineteenth century into the beginning of the nineteenth uh, century, in the beginning of the twentieth century, um, he he was an outstanding pope, uh, uh, an extraordinary, had a very long pontificate. In fact, uh, his was quite a long. It was only beaten by it's one of the ones who was beaten by Pope John Paul II. Um, but um, later in his pontificate, he became very, very conscious of the reality of evil and the, the dangers associated with, uh, with evil in the Christian life, in the society, and, and even within, within the church. And uh, it seems that he had some quite profound spiritual experiences himself in relation to evil. And, uh, and this is what particularly prompted him then to urge the church to be aware of the danger of the presence of evil, of the demonic, of the works of darkness uh, in the society, in our own lives, in, in the church. And so he, um, he, he particularly um, developed some prayers to, to pray um, against evil and, and encourage their use. He, he wrote quite a, a lengthy prayer, very beautiful, very powerful prayer, um, invoking the intercession of St. Michael the Archangel, because St. Michael the Archangel was seen as the one who particularly contested Satan and, and drove him out of heaven. So he was seen as the, uh, as the angel to pray to and seek intercession from in, um, in spiritual struggle. And so uh, he composed a, a prayer um, and encouraged its use. He, he also um, developed a shorter version of the prayer, the one that we are very familiar with. He developed a shorter version of the prayer, which um, he then uh, required to be said at the end of every Mass. Now, this was during the, uh, the 20th century, up to the time of the reforms of the liturgy in the Second Vatican Council. But um, those who, who lived during those times would be very familiar with the fact that at the end of Mass, before um, uh, the priest left the altar, the congregation together would say, 
the prayer to Sir Michael the Archangel. Such was the conviction of Pope uh, Leo the Thirteenth about the dangers of evil, that the, the the ways in which the church is is under threat from the powers of darkness, that he ordered this prayer to be prayed, and it's carried through. Then, while it's not now officially in the liturgy, it certainly carries through, and I think many Catholics um, really appreciate their prayer and i would strongly recommend I, I find myself using this prayer more and more in, in all sorts of circumstances and situations i think it's a very good prayer to pray particularly if you find yourself in situations of strong temptation or praying for the needs of the church praying for the needs of the world uh, against the powers of darkness let me read the prayer i'm sure you know it well it's something that um, is uh, a prayer that's commonly known but you might just i might just read it out we might just listen to it for a few moments to uh, to savor the text knowing its origins associated with uh, pope leo the 13th saint michael the archangel defend us in battle be our protection against the malice and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. Thank you, Bishop Julian. That was amazing to hear how that prayer came about through Pope Leo the Thirteenth. So um, I think that we'll all have a new appreciation and and really take that prayer with us through everyday life. So thank you, and we look forward to questioning you again next time on Question and Answer with Bishop Julian Porteous. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit radio.org.au.